Welcome to this episode of Living Legends, brought to you by the New Farm Insider. I'm your host today, John Reitman, and our guest is Dr. Carl Danneberger, professor at Ohio State University. Dr. Danneberger, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me, John. You have a reputation for being one of the most entertaining and fun people to listen to, whether it's at a field day, in a classroom, people who've taken your classes all say the same thing, or whether it's at the, the golf industry show. What's been your approach to teaching in the turf business? Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess one key thing is I just kind of grew up in the industry and I've always enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed golf. Uh, I've enjoyed the people involved with it. So so it's kind of all whether you're a student or a assistant superintendent or a golf professional it's almost for me anyway it's almost always like meeting a friend and uh so in in many ways that can be kind of a a relatively casual type of attitude uh but i've always enjoyed that and you know what um uh yeah, you know, because I've, I've, I remember sitting in at a uh, uh, at a recent field day, and as they were doing introductions, and they were getting ready to introduce you, and you looked around to the people who were who were standing around you, and you said, "I don't even know what I'm going to talk about yet today." And then they call your name, and up you go, and then it just, you know, and then the whole thing just takes the rest of the day takes on a life of its own. Yeah, you know what I. Uh, uh... Try telling stories. I always kid everybody and, and say, you know what? I I love the industry because I could tell stories that my family would never sit around and listen to. <laughs> but uh, um, I just, you know, um, I always want to know what what's on. I've never felt good about just straight lecturing to somebody. I know we do that, and 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 people have to learn or not learn, but you have to give them information. But I always felt being around people sometimes it's it's a fairly short time. Is what's on their mind? You know what what are the questions they have that that I may uh, um, be able to answer or whatever. Uh, sometimes if I can't answer it directly, that's when I start telling stories to kind of divert. But uh, uh, you know what? There's a lot of actually academic uh, scholarly work that uh, um, telling stories or telling a story is, is an extremely effective way of people remembering something. Um, I heard a faculty member here who is one of the outstanding teachers here at Ohio State, and he's in mathematics, and he teaches calculus. And his emphasis is, uh, has always been, i got to be able to tell a story, you know, a story about this. And I thought, geez, how can you tell a story about calculus? And uh, um, so I thought, if you can learn through that, you can learn, you can learn turf management through through stories, and most of those stories are experiences, either of mine or, or other people. So, so there is a purpose in those stories, but uh, I've kind of embraced that. Uh, how should I say it? Uh, 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 perception of me. So, hopefully, I don't disappoint. You said you grew up around the industry. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, you know. Um, I can still remember uh, my brother and I, when I turned 12, my dad uh, uh, 
we went out to this course called Lake of the Woods in Muhammad, Illinois. And it's still there. It's a county course. Oh, my dad, he hadn't played much golf. He bought my brother and I a set of clubs. They were a women's club, you know. And uh, without even playing, got us lessons with the uh, pro there, whose name is uh, Richard Naughton. And actually, I've kind of lost touch with him, but he, if you look at years of continual membership at GCSA, he's got to be in the top 10. He's got over 60-some years. And he was a pro superintendent and at this county course. And uh, he, taught, he taught my brother and I and then taught me the game and played. And, and for years, my parents bought a membership. We'd go out and play. Plus, I caddied at uh, Champaign Country Club when I was just an early teenager. And, and one of the great experiences, okay? And uh, uh, I kidded. I was in China last week and, and came across these Chinese women caddies. And I was trying to tell them some of my caddy stories. They were not impressed. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, but uh, anyway, um, through high school and uh, playing golf, and then he he hired me on to, uh, and I was we would be out there every day. You know, it was like the golf club. The golf course was our babysitter. My parents would drop me off, or my brother, and then my dad would come out. We'd play in the evenings, and so it was a it was a day. And then. Uh, uh, Mr. Naughton hired me on to the crew, said that would be a great place for you to learn more about the game and and uh, also the management of the golf course. And uh, he was the dir- one that directed me toward turf grass management. And I went to Purdue University. He told me that's where I should go and uh, if I wanted to be in this business. And uh, from there, it was uh, he was a, he he was my first mentor in the in the profession. Bill Daniels, who uh, was at Purdue at the time, and was my advisor, and he steered me toward graduate school. I did some projects with him and told me to go work with Al Turgeon at the University of Illinois. So I went back home to Champaign, and then Al said, you know, Carl, it would be good for you to go to Michigan State and get your Ph.D. with Joe Vargas. And I always value those guys, you know, mentoring. I, I kind of think what, what my life would be like if, if they hadn't steered me toward this. And then after Michigan State, I came here to Ohio State. Geez, John, it's been 34 years. So, so anyway, so, um, so I've always been, since the age of 12, around the game, around the maintenance and stuff like that. So what was it like back in the day working on a master's with Dr. Turgeon and working toward a PhD with Dr. Vargas. Yeah, you know what? Al Turgeon, since I'm known for stories, I'll tell you this story. Okay. I went to visit Illinois. Went over, he called me, was gonna offer me assistantship. This was like in November and I was gonna start in January. And I remember pulling up at the front of the old horticulture building there. It was a temporary building from World War II. And I look and I'm going, I'm not going here. You know, I'd made up my mind. And hour and a half later with Al, I had signed the papers to go to grad school. Al could talk a dog off a meat wagon. All right. And, uh, um, Bruce Branham, who's at Illinois, would laugh. He, same thing happened to him. 
And I'll just, I'll live turf 24-7. I mean, you would, he was there all the time. I, I remember, um, I remember getting a call on a Sunday night. This is before, uh, you know, obviously cell phones. And I pick up the phone and, uh, Al is on the other end, doesn't even say, hey, Carl, or anything. He goes, get down here to the lab now, and hangs up. So I head on down there and stuff. But Al was just an just a tremendous motivator, um, a person that uh, uh, just exuded enthusiasm for turf and, and what you were doing. And, and he... Uh, he it had already been instilled, but uh, Al believed and embraced the concept of the the work ethic. You worked, and uh, I always remember those days, man. It was it was exciting, and uh, you were there all the time because he was there all the time. So, so that was pretty cool. What was that phone call about? Huh? Uh, he didn't like some of my data, I don't think, or there was a problem. Who knows with Al? I'd be going in there, and uh, 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 he was, uh, yeah, he'd let me have it, too. The other grad students always considered me his whipping boy. So, so but I, I, Al was, he, you know, I enjoyed working with him. I think he enjoyed me. He was, he's always been a huge supporter of me. And uh, I value his, I feel, obviously I viewed his prof, uh, professional association with him high, but I view him as, as, a, as a real friend. And uh, uh, in some ways, it's probably the, the best 18 months of my life, so research-wise. So, uh, I would consider him to be the consummate gentleman scholar. He, he, no, he was. Uh, I get, I get a little worried about this living legend thing. But uh, um, <laughs> Al was, uh, Al was just uh, a motivator. He, he loved, he loved. He, you're right. He loved the science. He was always curious, and he would always challenge you um, to do your best. And, and he was always supportive. And one of the funny things, though. Uh, when we were grad, when I was a graduate student, um, and at that time, I don't know, some Bill Torello was a grad student who retired from the University of Massachusetts a few years ago. Um, Bruce Branham, who's at the University of Illinois now, uh, Dave Chalmers. We were all grad students at the time, so it was an exciting time. Al built his program on grad students, so from that perspective, it was an exciting time. And he he would always try to stop smoking. And we could always tell when he wanted to quit smoking because in his office he would uh, wash out his uh, ashtray and then he'd fill it up with candy. And uh, um, we'd go in there every night and eat all his candy. And then he'd come in and he'd be complaining about the janitors reading his candy and everything like that. So, so, uh, so I don't know if that refers to him as a scholarly person, but he was always well-read just lived and and breathed the science of turf. And then Joe Vargas. Uh, you know what? Uh, Joe Vargas was, working with Joe was just so much fun. And I don't mean fun in the sense that it was easy going and all that. I mean, he was, I just learned so much from Joe. 
and where I learned a huge amount from Al about how to do science and things like that. I still learned that from Joe, but what I learned from Joe was how to deal with people. Um, how do, how do you like, you go into a crowd of, and nobody knows you and you know, how do you handle that situation? How, how do you interact? And, and, um, Joe was, and he always had, he always, as you know, John, he has these one liners, like these kind of, uh, um, how should I say great sayings that he, or great lines that just capture everything in like one or two sentences. And uh, I always kid him and I say, when are you going to retire so I can use some of those lines now and take full credit for them? And, uh, uh, but uh, if he's your friend, there's nothing he won't do for you. I learned a lot um, from, from Joe Vargas of, of how to deal with things, how to deal with people, um, how to diagnose things in the field. He's got to be one of the very best, if not the best, person I've ever seen in the field diagnosing a problem. Pinpoint fungicide from New Farm Americas contains a new active ingredient to deliver outstanding early and late season control of dollar spot. Pinpoint provides superintendents and turf management professionals with an excellent fungicide rotation partner to optimize disease management stewardship. Pinpoint's unique and targeted active ingredient has been proven in university performance trials and delivers outstanding control of dollar spot, take all patch, fairy ring, and brown patch to ensure a clean field of play. For more information, visit newfarm.com. Some of what you teach, you don't necessarily stick just to turf. You talk about the history of the game, incorporating the history of the golf ball and how that affects what superintendents do. Things like that that you don't normally get in a class. And also, you're uh, sort of a pioneer in online instruction and also incorporating students from overseas, bringing them into Ohio State. What's been your approach that you've been taking on a lot of new trends that not everybody else has necessarily embraced yet? Yeah, you know, um, I could almost... uh... We don't, I'm not going to bore you with all the things. One of the great things about being in academia and uh, uh, is that it doesn't happen this way, but literally I could come in and um, say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. You know, now you got to get money and stuff like that. But you can change the direction of, uh, of what, what you're doing without really going with with you just personally making that decision, all right? And so when you see opportunities or things like that, you can quickly adjust to them. So in a lot of ways, you know, if I look at my career, you know, the first 10 years at Ohio State was was uh carry over some of, from my uh some of my PhD or graduate work where I did a lot of computer modeling and disease prediction and growth models and growing degree days and things like that. And, you know, those disease models are still used globally. And so that's nice, you know, when, when you do something and you see some of your research and stuff actually being used and, and taken to a new level of delivery and stuff. 
And then um, I saw uh, the change coming in the late 80s, that a lot of things were going to go molecular. And I was fortunate to be hanging around some guys here at Ohio State who were new hirees, and they said, wait, wait till this new PCR stuff, this new kind of molecular techniques, they're common. They're common. You're going to be able to do a lot of neat things. And, and at that time, I was looking at some ecology things. And for the next 10 years, basically through the 90s, through guys like Rob Golombieski, who's with Bayer, Greg Bell, who's was a graduate student too and, and uh, just retired from Oklahoma State, and, and Patty Sweeney, who's retired now. Um, they drove all this molecular stuff where we looked at how populations change in turf and stuff. And then we did, and uh, Dan Kendricks, who did some of that intraseeding work and stuff and so so that was a big thing and then in um probably the last third even though we carried research was to look at online education and uh, we did that through creation of certificate programs and a lot of that uh, idea was generated from the international students that we were bringing in through michael keith's program and uh, they would come and visit. And, and uh, again, you get around faculty and they'll call you in. That's a great thing, too, about being in a university. And one of the faculty members here said, Carl, come in here. Let me show you something. And he showed me these programs that you can make these pretty cool, what we call them slide podcasts. And we built these uh, ideas of uh, online education through that where you could do it any time or, you know, you didn't need an instructor there and we built on that and now we I teach a couple online courses in turf grass and ones that like the history of golf that are extremely popular across campus matter of fact hardly any of the ag kids take it it's just all business and and so uh that's been a rewarding thing. I always felt teaching was, especially here with this online, it's a scholarly pursuit. It's just not teaching. and The creative stuff that goes into it, how you create games, how you get people to interact uh, is, is kind of interesting. So. so that's been an exciting thing. I continue to do that. Plus, you know, I do a, quite a bit of field research and stuff like that. So. How did the history of golf program materialize? Yeah, uh, happened in the early, uh, late 90s, actually. Um, there was a faculty member here named Martin Quigley. And uh, I had this idea that, you know, I traveled all over the, at the world, um, you know, involved with architects, you know, with uh, setting or, or writing uh, protocols and programs and just interacting with with the whole golf industry and Martin Quigley was a landscape architect and he had actually been involved way back in the day with Castle Pines in Colorado and laying that out and all that the development and everything and we were sitting around and uh, Martin's just he's left now he's I think he's at Central Florida uh, University but uh We'd be sitting around, and uh, um, we were just talking and telling stories. And I go, I had this idea for this class. And, and he said, you know, it's kind of funny. He hated golf. 
but uh, uh, he'd, he'd teach half of it, which was actually design aspects, and I taught, like, the history of golf. And one of the neat things about that class was Martin, um, I would always think outside the box, and he goes, well, we need to visit some golf courses, and how better way to visit golf courses than in a helicopter? Oh, wow. So as part of the fee, this is 2004, uh, students would contribute $50 and to the class, and then we'd pay the other 50 It was about 100 bucks for a half hour for a kid in, in a you know helicopter. We had it all mapped out, and they'd fly over Scioto Country Club, uh, Muirfield Village, Tartan Fields, just to see the different architect. You know, there were different architects design in 30 minutes. So the class became known as like the helicopter class, <laughs> and it was extremely. I mean, we had we had students sign up just to do the helicopter thing, and so that was fun. I, and he was pretty creative, and that you know that's that's helped. And then of course 9/11 took care of that. Um, after that, it was you had to do. Uh, you know, all the security checks and all that and, and insurance. And so that ended. We did that probably for three or four years. That was pretty cool, reminiscent about that. So uh, so that kind of started. It's evolved. And uh, I'm the sole instructor now. And, uh, uh, and then about three or four years ago, I put it online. And it's been extremely popular. You know, it's a free elective for most students across campus. Word of mouth, uh, a lot of students take it. Is it a hard class? No, it's not a really hard class if you do all the work. Right. You know, it's only two units. But I still give out ease. You know, some students just don't do anything. So, so what the heck? But, uh, and then I, you know, the nice thing too is is I have people like Mike Hertzen here in mm-hmm. Columbus who. A lot of people don't know he's like one of the world's, and I at least know in the United States, one of the biggest golf, as you know, John, one of the biggest golf collectors. And his office is just a tribute to this collection. It's like a little indoor village. He's a, yeah, it's, he is, and you talk about a guy who can tell stories when you walk through. I mean, I, I could listen to him for days. So those kind of resources around, of course, having Jack Nichols here in the museum and just the history of golf around Columbus is amazing. And the access to these clubs and the stories members would tell me and things have have uh, just added, I hope, to the overall flavor of the class. Between Jack Nicholas and the university and some of the classic era layouts that are around columbus is a much bigger golf centric location i think than a lot of people give it credit for yeah you know uh, uh it is a, you know columbus is the largest city in ohio it's, it's rapidly growing um talk about it for a program students can work part-time at uh uh, or do internships right around here to build their resume. You think of, I'm trying to think of the ones right off the top, Scioto Country Club, Ohio State Scarlet, Muirfield Village, um, Double Eagle, the Golf Club. I mean, those are all top golf courses. Golf Digest, what, top 50? They're all right here in Columbus. 
And, uh, yeah, maybe that's what I ought to do, John. When the day comes that I retire, I better make sure I know all those people pretty well so I can just kind of travel around and play golf. <laughs> do you play still? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I don't play as much. Um, they need to, you know, at, when you're younger, you go, ah, you know. I'm just going to, when I get older, I'm just going to play golf all the time. But if you know this game is like you get older, you don't play as much, then you know those drives that you hit 270 yards, now they're down to, you know, they start dropping and dropping. And now you're lucky to hit it outside of your shadow. So, you know, you've got to find other things to do besides play golf. The pressure to deliver green speed intensifies, and the things you have to do to elicit that. How has your job changed as the conditions that your students will have to manage change over time? Yeah, uh, besides delivering what everybody wants with less, I mean, that's always going to be tougher. I, You know, it it gets, for me, it's so amazing that when you look at, at these greens, and strictly from an ecology standpoint, I don't care whether they're an ultra dwarf or a creepy bent grass. And you're mowing these things at a tenth of an inch. So you're managing what? I don't know, 150 million little shoots at a tenth of an inch for nine months, eight months. It is amazing. Um, what's being done in that. And you know, from a, from a research standpoint, it becomes a real challenge because, you know, these guys are, or, and women who are managing these courses now are so kind of out in front of you. Like, we can't, we can't maintain greens like that at the research facility because they're too expensive. We have to do a lot of our work, like at Muirfield Village or Double Eagle or somewhere like that where, where things are, where they can maintain that kind of stuff. So, so in many ways, um, the studies that maybe we could do 20 years ago, especially cultural kind of programs, are, are extremely difficult now because these guys are, are you know, uh, ahead of the curve in many ways. So, uh, so I, that's the challenge. And uh, for me, it's just, man, I've had to adapt and go off-site more often if I'm going to do high-quality putting green-type research. As a person in the academic world, how do you stay on top of these changes? I try to read a lot. You know, uh, I try to, uh, you know, obviously, for me, I'm looking at research. What what are my colleagues publishing? What What's the new interesting stuff they're doing? that uh that applies to the industry so staying uh reading the science actually you know i get your blog you know when you do compilation of the blogs from superintendent i look at those i look at trade magazines i'm looking at anything that can give me an indication because you're right john you know what if i sit in my office for two years and i go back out there and just stand there it, it's passed me by and uh and so staying on top also i think staying on top if you stay up to date or try to um it keeps you young you're always learning something so uh minutes you think you know everything 
uh, you're done. So, uh, so I, I, I try to read a lot, you know, um, base and, and obviously talk to a lot of people. So now that doesn't mean I agree with everything people are doing out there, but you know, I can do that. Sure. Sure. Talk a little bit about your team there at Ohio state. Yeah, I, uh, um, a lot of us have the same personality. Uh, so we like to kid each other. In August, we moved uh, down a floor. And so now Dave Gardner, Dr. Gardner, and uh, Pam Sherrod, who's our athletic field director, and, and myself, we're in the same suite of offices, okay? And, uh, and you know what? The wall, they're listening to this interview right now because the walls, you can hear right through the walls. And... Uh, I think uh, the fun part about being around them is that, uh, yeah, we talk about a lot of things. We talk a lot of turf, you know, uh, what's going on. And and both Dave, Pam, and I, we, we write columns. And so every, every once in a while you're going around going, so what's going on? I need an idea. And we, we'll sit around and discuss things. And uh, so I think we get along well. Everybody brings a talent. Dave is uh, Dave is uh, great weed control knows that back and forth uh, statistician I mean from research standpoint he's involved in that he's done some really great stress physiology work through his students and himself and then of course Pam has basically she has run our uh, research program in athletic field management. Um, with graduate students and then she does the undergraduate teaching there and has a they all have a tremendous reputation in the industry so here in horticulture and crop science it, it's just a great great group everybody you know enjoy coming into work every day and part of that reason is is because they're here um, you're right. We're going through changes. John Street retired uh, about two years ago, although he hasn't gone anywhere. He still comes <laughs> and, and bugs me. So, but uh, John's a good guy. Dave Shetler just retired too, our entomologist, and so we're scrambling to see how we're we're going to try to get that refilled. But Dave is still, you know, he's retired, but he's he's back teaching. Um, he teaches the turf and ornamental classes and stuff like that. Over in plant pathology, Joe Renosbach, uh just excellent. You know, he's out in the state all the time, um, especially here in Ohio. He, you know, Ohio's like the fifth, uh, what, largest um, fungicide market in the country or something along those lines. So his testing along with Todd and uh, and then being out and handling the samples and, and, and all that is, is a major component to our programs. And then, and two, Ed McCoy. Um, Ed's a real quiet guy, so a physicist, highly respected for what he does and mixes and things like that. Still teaches sports turf, soils, stuff like that. So, so you know what? Um, we like to get together and talk turf, um, which is great. Um, and, uh, that's what I enjoy about them. They, it's a solid program here. Um, 
yeah, we need to add a few people and strengthen a few things. But uh, overall, we all interact with students, the industry. Um, so, so it's going well. We could use some more students, but uh, it's going well. well. We've been talking here for quite a while, and I think this is the longest I've ever spoken with you when you haven't dropped in some sort of a metaphor about a muscle car. I, I, I was trying to stay away from Well, that. I know that's one of your great passions. How did you develop such an affinity for uh, classic muscle cars, and what are some of the ones that you own yourself or have owned in the past? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so I remember a few years ago you bought yourself, it, a, I think, a Camaro or a Firebird or something. You bought yourself a Father's Day present. Yeah, yeah it took... Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, like like a lot of people in this industry, okay, um, you know, came to Ohio State, and, you know, the demands are basically you only have two things in your life, your family and your work, all right? It's just the way it is, you know, expectations and such. And as you get older, your kids grow, da-da-da-da. Well, about uh, uh, six years ago, I think, my youngest son, uh, bought a 1970 Nova um, as a project car. Matter of fact, he's switching out the engines this week, um, putting in a 383 stroker. But anyway, he bought this car to learn about cars. And it caught me by surprise. He gave it a lot of thought. And our field manager, Matt Williams, is into cars, okay, mm-hmm. and has helped him on some things and, and stuff like that. So my son got this car, and I just kind of go, Wow, this is, and of course, I I used to have, a, my dad bought me a 67 Camaro when I was in high school. And so I went from being a real geek to actually being halfway cool. And uh, um, uh, and so the years go by, and da-da-da. And the opportunity came up from a guy that was across the hallway who had two 69 Firebirds. It was, actually had one since he was in high school and did it, and he was getting another one and offered uh, if I was interested. And, of course, I thought, wow, you know, same F chassis and all this. And so I told this isn't how you do this. Uh, so uh, this is why I'm in academia, not business. I go, well, this is how much money I got. <laughs> and he goes, that might work. So we go down there. And I ended up getting it, and uh, uh, I bought it, and uh, it took me uh, four days to tell my wife that I actually bought oh, it. Oh, boy. And, uh, um, yeah, I had to wait for the right time to do that. So uh, it worked out. She's happy about it. Um, she's not into cars. Neither is my oldest son. But uh, uh, So I got this, and it's almost uh, it's become my hobby. So, uh, uh, 69 Firebird muscle cars, it just, you know, I bought it strictly on memories of my childhood, you know, of growing up and uh, through the late 60s and 70s. And, and uh, when you could get muscle cars and the Camaros and the, uh, the Challengers and such, which is kind of encouraging now that you see all all these new muscle cars. So there's a whole new, new generation of, of people being brought up on them. And you know what? That car has, you know, I go to car shows, and yes, I put probably more money into that car than I should. And uh, uh, But you know what? I go to these car shows, and 
hang around guys that probably don't even think like me. Well, I know they don't think like me politically, but it's good to be around people and different types of people and talk cars and stuff like that. Sure. And uh, something my son can do. And uh, uh, you know what? It's led to a couple other spin-off hobbies. Like one was I want to do my garage. I think I wrote something on this maybe. But uh, I just started collecting old vinyl albums with uh, cars on the cover. And that led to, you know, who's that group? And it didn't matter what group. And, and you know, vinyl records are coming back. I didn't know that until I started doing that. And then, uh, and then I've taken another look at uh, 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 photography. You know, we've always, you know, I can remember by my first Olympus, reflex camera back in the 70s and so photography's always been a part in slides and all that but now i've refocused on this car so actually i have an instagram account where the only pictures are of my fire <laughs> so yeah so i thought you know it's the only model i have everybody else gets women or whatever <laughs> whatever so so that's mine i say that that's my model so yeah it's uh what is it Firebird Dublin. So, so that's it. But yeah, John, you know what, John? It, it's been a great thing. I've gone to, to meetings in Spokane, Washington, superintendents meeting, you know, and you might be sitting around a table. And you may not know the people very well. They don't know you very well. All you have to mention is a car. You know, I have, and then it's surprising who in this industry. You know, I got a 58 Chevy or I got this or that. And uh, um, so it's been a nice, also, it's a nice uh, icebreaker. So, yeah, John, you need to come down and take pictures of my car. I know it. And, <laughs> so, and, and you mentioned now collecting old vinyl albums with cars on the cover. If I'm not mistaken, I think the old 70s and 80s band uh, that was called the cars i think i think a couple of those guys were from ohio state yeah actually there's another band out now 21 or something that's from ohio state but yeah i'd heard that i wasn't real sure but you're the second person to tell me that actually i got about like three of their albums but uh for those who do it you know there it's like a trip to go to these uh record stores especially here on campus it worked out well you know it's like going back to the 70s um you go in there it's usually run by a guy that's more a woman that's pretty well uh, they're my age and, and you can go back to the dollar bins and you just go flipping through these albums and the ones you get and there's a whole collection kind of thing so uh I haven't listened to any of them. I don't. Uh, uh, I don't have a record player or a turntable, and so I just have these albums. But I've learned a lot about about music just by reading on them, and and then also trying to figure out what the car is on the cover. So, what's your dream ride? Oh man. Oh. Uh, I don't really know, John. You can go back and forth. Uh, uh, you know, somebody says, if you got rid of your fiber, what would you get? And, you know, I can't really think of something that 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 makes me. Um, uh, and it doesn't have to be a real expensive car. You know, I've, 
you know, somebody goes, oh, when'd you get a Ferrari? And I go, well, you know, I didn't really grow up with a Ferrari. So that, you know, those don't, even though it's a beautiful car and everything and all that, I, that's not what I associate with. You know, that's a tough question, John. I guess I'd have to say it. Uh, I will take uh, Paul Latchow when he's superintendent out here at Muirfield. We were talking about cars, and I had this, uh, uh, we were talking about at the time, BM, he has a BMW now or whatever. We were talking about BMWs, and, and, and he says, you know what? I kept telling him, you know, I've had I had mine for a long, long time, and and he goes, he goes, you know, uh, any car that you can sit in and still, when you turn the key or turn the punch the ignition that puts a smile on your face, you know, that's the right kind of car to have, and uh, uh, so I I look for that. So if I'm sitting in a car. Uh, if it puts a smile on my face, uh, that's the kind of car I'd like to have. Um, honestly, yeah, I would probably like to have a 1970 454 Chevelle SS. It's a nice choice. Yeah, and if somebody gave me a Lamborghini, I wouldn't turn it down yeah. until it came time to have maintenance work. But uh, so, so, what would you have, John? My choice would be a. 1967 Corvette L88 with the 427. Oh, big block. Yep. That's an interesting year because the 66 was a great year too. 66 had the split split windshield in the back. No, I think that was a think that was a 63. That's right. So yeah, actually, it's been kind of funny. I, I've had some. I've had, uh, uh, I used to show this old picture of, actually it was a street I lived on in Champaign, it was a dead end, you know, I was probably in high school and I took the picture, I was showing burnout of a turf along the street, and down at the end of the street was this Pontiac GTL that the neighbor had, it was 68. And I remember one time in lecture I put that slide up, and next thing you know, one of the guys, who was an older uh, guy goes, is that, is that, uh, is that a 68, I don't even remember, 68, 69 GTO? And I go, I don't know. And for the next 30 minutes, he explained the history of GTOs to uh, all the students in class. Hmm. I found out most students don't interrupt comments or as long as it's not part of lecture, right? Right. Let him talk, let him talk. Yep. So, but, uh, Carl, thank you for joining us. Oh, I appreciate it's it. It's been a real pleasure uh, talking to you, as always, and just a lot of fun. Well, thanks. Come down anytime, you know. I'll give you a ride. 